Good morning, everybody. We want to invite our children to the children's church. Um, meet your teacher there in the back. And as they're going, let me help us in a word of prayer, and then we'll turn to the word. Lord, Holy Spirit, we need you. Um, we need you to be with us. Lord, you've written your word. You inspired Luke to write it. And now, Lord, we're calling on you, and we ask that you would be with us so that we might understand and uh, help us grasp what it is that you have to say to us today. Uh, Lord, your word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, able to pierce between uh, bone and marrow. Um, Lord, would you do that now? Would you use your word to, to pierce to our souls and to help us to see and understand better? Open our eyes and our hearts, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So we're, um, just a reminder, we're doing the book of Acts, and, and my premise for the book of Acts, my thought on the book of Acts is, the book of Acts is about Jesus' disciples making disciples. The book of Luke um, was written to this guy, uh, um, Theophilus, and he said he wanted him to be sure of the things that he'd been taught. Disciples learn. Disciples learn from their master. And so the book of Luke was about Jesus making disciples. And so when we got to Acts, he kind of picks that up again the second time, and he says, okay, well, this is now, what happens when Jesus is gone? Jesus is, is sitting at the right hand of God. Well, his disciples now make disciples. And that's why I get kind of excited about Acts, because I'm a disciple and I want to make disciples. So I want to see, how does that work? Does it work? What happens? And yeah, it does. That's what's been going on. Where we're at in Acts now is kind of like the third stage of it, the third portion of it. Um, Paul had passed through Ephesus as he went to Jerusalem, and he promised them at the time, I will return if it's possible. And so he came back. And what we saw last week was just briefly Paul re Paul's return to, um, to Ephesus. Um, now, it was profound. It had a lot going on. He stayed there a couple of years. He was teaching in the Hall of Tyrannus. He had reached all of Asia. But the way Luke wrote it was real short, real, real tiny little bit on that. And then we saw the, the implications of disciples. And you remember last week was there were incomplete disciples, there were these folks who had heard the gospel or the, uh, the preaching and the baptism of John the Baptist, but they hadn't heard the rest of the story. They were called disciples, but they weren't complete. They hadn't received the Spirit. And then we saw imitation disciples. We saw the seven sons of Sceva trying to cast out a demon by the, Paul, the Jesus Paul preached, and what it got them was beat up. They didn't fare well. So the second part of, of chapter 19 it's kind of similar because Paul does not feature really prominently in it. He, he gets a little speech at the beginning, and then he's talked about in the rest of it. So as we're going through this, what we need to look at is, is how is Luke presenting this information to us? What is his point? How does this help us be a better disciple? And uh, what I think we're going to see, I, I, I personally, I think it's very clever the way he put it together here. He uses a story of a riot to tell us gospel implications. What does the gospel mean? Is the gospel simply for the saving of your soul and it means nothing else? Or does it apply in a broad, broad way? So that's what we're going to see. And Luke, uh, Luke just doesn't put Paul front and center for this. Um, as a matter of fact, in the second half, he's not allowed to speak. <laughs> he's just the cause of the problem, but he doesn't get to speak. So first of all, there's this brief introduction. Luke is kind of setting it up for us. After these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia, Achaia and go to Jerusalem. So you remember where Macedonia and Achaia are. They're in Greece. Macedonia is kind of the northern portion of Greece. Um, uh, Achaia is the southern portion. 
He's in Turkey, right at the, the southwest tip of Turkey, and he's going to sail back through there and then turn around and go back to Jerusalem again. So that's what he says. Now, one of the things it says there is that he resolved in the spirit to, to do this. Um, at this point, you're just going, okay, well, what does that mean? What does it mean to resolve in the spirit? Because the New International Version says Paul decided to go to Jerusalem. It doesn't even mention the spirit. Uh, the New Living Translation says Paul felt compelled by the spirit. Uh, the Christian Standard Bible says Paul resolved by the spirit. And the King James uses a lowercase s for spirit. So what are we getting at here? <laughs> the ESV just translates it just pretty much as you would find it in the Greek, which is in the spirit. But what could that possibly mean? Well, the phrase is used other places, and really the context helps you understand it. Unfortunately, we don't have any context here. It just drops it in our lap and presses on. However, there is a little bit of a clue. And that's because that word resolved. Paul resolved in the spirit. It's in the middle voice. And the middle voice in Greek kind of says it reflects back to the person. So the thing he's saying here is Paul himself resolved to do this. So Paul resolved. And then in the spirit, like if you look at how the NIV takes it, is, is his spirit, kind of his, his rationale, his reasoning, decided to do that. Um, like I said, there's a couple other places where in the Spirit is used. For example, Romans 1.9, uh, Paul uses the exact same phrase in Greek, and he says, in my spirit is the way it's translated, because the context tells you it's in his spirit. Um, in Luke chapter 4, verse 1, Jesus was led in the Spirit, or translated by the Spirit, into the wilderness. And then even earlier in Luke, uh, you remember uh, Simeon, the man who was at the temple? And he was just amazed. He was, it was prophesied to him. It was told to him by the Spirit, by the way, that he would not die before he got to see the Messiah. And so he was at the temple looking for it. And what it says in Luke 2.27 is, in the Spirit, he came into the temple. So you get a variety of uses for that. What, so what? What's the big deal? Well, this is important. This is going to become important because... What we're going to see is Paul has, whatever this means, in the Spirit, decided to go to Jerusalem, right? But in chapter 21, verse 4, it says this. Some disciples, uh, or he sought out the disciples, and he stayed for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. And then later on in that chapter, uh, Agabus, a prophet, is going to say, this is what happens to the man who owns this belt when he gets to Jerusalem, and he tied himself up with the belt. So the question is, was Paul being disobedient by deciding to go to Jerusalem? Because it says in chapter 21, by, through the Spirit, they were telling him not to go. Or did the Spirit change his mind, tell Paul at this beginning, go to Jerusalem, then in the middle, don't go to Jerusalem, and then go, well, you're going to go to Jerusalem, so here's what's going to happen. Well, the Spirit doesn't change his mind. <laughs> That's, we can rule that one out right off the bat. That doesn't happen. Um, it becomes an important question. Is Paul deciding to go to Jerusalem, is that a good thing or is it disobedience? Um, is it just him being stubborn and saying, I'm going to do it, even when he's told not to or not? Well, I'm not going to explain chapter 21 yet. <laughs> we'll, I haven't figured it out, to tell you the truth. We'll figure it out when we get there. What I think is going on here is that, that middle voice on the word resolved. I think that gives us our clue. Paul has decided this is what I need to do. 
I need to go back through Macedonia and Achaia. I need to go back and visit those churches that I planted and help them, strengthen them, visit them, get, make sure they're established and doing well, and then I'm going to head off to Jerusalem. So I, I kind of like the NIV's version, which is uh, he decided to go. So it's in his own spirit, in his own kind of being, he decided that he would go to Jerusalem. So that's what he's going to do, and that's, that's the speech we get. After I've been here, I must see Rome. He's going to head off to Rome after that. Uh, hint, I read ahead in the book. I, I cheated. That's exactly what happens. <laughs> it really does. He goes to Jerusalem. He gets arrested. He gets sent someplace else and eventually put on a boat and sent to Rome. So that's exactly what happened. Um, so maybe it is the Spirit. You know, maybe this is prophecy. I don't know. It, it, I, I think that's the answer. So that's what he does. And, and in the meantime, though, it says that he stays in Asia for a while. He stayed there for a period, but he sent his two helpers, Timothy and Erastus. He sent them on to Macedonia to kind of prepare things, to get the churches ready, let them know, hey, Paul's coming. We're going to need a place to stay. Um, um, how are you guys doing? Maybe we can you know, help you resolve some problems that you're having, something like that. So that's the picture. Paul is still in Asia, and at this point, he sent his helpers off. So he's by himself. So that's the introduction. Here's the problem. This is where the trouble comes from. Uh, about that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. I love the way Luke does it, and he does it twice here. No little disturbance, and then he says, brought no little business. So if it was no little disturbance and no little business, it must be a big disturbance and a big business that he brought. So this guy named Demetrius, who's a silversmith, um, he makes his living. He makes a really good living, by the way, by building these little silver shines to the goddess Artemis. And what he does is he sells them, him and his, these other tradesmen, they work together and they sell these to people who would come to worship Artemis at the temple. Um, that's how he makes his money. So he's a silversmith. Now, he probably understands other metallurgical skills, but it takes a special skill to work in silver because silver is a little bit harder than gold and not as hard as, as iron and that kind of stuff or bronze. And so, you know, you got to finesse it just the right way. So this is what he does. It's his specialty. Um, and there's no little disturbance about the way. In other words, Demetrius raises a stink. He raises a big stink because of the way. The way is really just Luke's term for Christianity at this point. Um, we, we, we only got barely introduced to the word Christian because at Antioch, that's when they were first called Christians. But this is still fairly new. And so that really hasn't developed into the term that we would use for it today. So Luke uses the way. And so Demetrius brings up this big problem with the way. We'll come back to his objections at the end because I think that really is the application here, is the, the objections he brings up. We'll come back to them. Um, but here's what's going on. He says that um, he gets all the tradesmen together and he says, you know that from this business we have wealth or we make our profit, we make money off this. And you see in here that not only here in Ephesus but almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people. Listen to the negative, the, the, this is a hostile witness saying the effectiveness of Paul's ministry. Paul has largely been in Ephesus, and yet he has turned to almost all of Asia, has been persuaded by him. That, that's a huge testimony to the success of what Paul did, and he did it from the Hall of Tyrannus, what we learned last week. 
So it wasn't like he was traveling throughout Asia. He was preaching and teaching, and the word was getting out. And it's true. It really happened. And, and the way Paul did it was he did not bully people. He didn't threaten them. If you don't become a Christian, I'll break your fingers or something. He didn't pass legislation or petition that the laws be changed. Everybody's got to be Christian or they go to jail. What did he do? He simply persuaded. And what we've seen of Paul's ministry so far, what does his pattern be? His pattern has been to go into a synagogue and reason regularly that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the promised one who was going to come. Only Jesus can fill that bill because only Jesus rose from the dead. That's been his recurring message over and over and over again. And so that's what Paul has done. And it's so effective. It's, it's gone throughout all of Asia, which is that central part of Turkey, um, so that uh, many people are turning away. And he, what he claims Paul said was that gods made with hands are not gods. Have we seen Paul say that yet? Paul's predominant message is Jesus Christ died and rose again from the dead, therefore he is the Messiah. That's been the predominant message that we've heard. There have been a couple of places where he's encountered uh, these false gods. For example, um, um, when he was in, where'd it go? When he was in Lystra, he encountered, uh, he, he went in and he healed a man. And what happened was the, 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 uh, God, or the uh, priest to the god Zeus brought out sacrifice, and they were going to offer sacrifice to these guys. They were going to say, you know, um, Paul must be Hermes or, or Mercury, the chief speaker, and Barnabas is Zeus, and so let's sacrifice to him. And Paul's response to them was not, well, those are false gods. You don't have anything to do with them. His response was, you guys know. <laughs> we're human beings just like you. We're made of the same stuff. We're not these gods you think we are. And what he does is he invites them to turn from vain things to the true and living God. So that's kind of confrontational with, with the, the idols, but it wasn't directly confrontational. It was more about, we're preaching a better God to you. And then the same thing happened when he got to um, Athens. He shows up in Athens and he walks through the city and it says he was provoked because of all the idols. And so his response then is not stop worshiping idols. His response is, you guys are worshiping something you don't know. You've got a, a, or a, a temple to an unknown God, and I'm here to pronounce to you the true and the living God. So he does talk about turning away from idols, but that isn't the primary point of his message. The primary point of his message is there's something better. So Demetrius feels threatened because if these things that aren't really God's if that word gets out, our, our line of business is done. We're going to have to wrap up that whole thing that we're doing. And so he's not really happy about that. There's a danger that not only will our trade come into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Artemis may, continue, may be counted as nothing, and she may be deposed of her magnificence. So who's Artemis, and what about her temple? So Artemis was the twin sister of Apollos. Apollos is uh, Mars, the god of war. And so she is his, tw his twin. They were supposed to have been born at the same time. She's the goddess of the forest and the hills. So when she's depicted, it's often her with a bow and arrow in, in, a, in a forest setting, and then she's usually accompanied by deer. 
So that's the picture that you get of Artemis, is she's this goddess of hunting. But the other thing that she is, is she's the goddess of childbirth and midwifery. That was, that was what people would do. They would come to the temple of Artemis when they were pregnant, going to have a baby, and they would offer to Artemis so that the baby would be delivered and things would go okay. That was really important back then because infant mortality rates were around 25%. It was huge. So this goddess is seen as this, this protector of childbearing. So you didn't want to make her mad. Otherwise, your babies would die. You wanted to keep her happy, and so they would come to the temple and they would offer sacrifices to her. Um, by the way, and I don't have the whole answer, but I just thought I'd drop this on you and you'll, you think about it for a little bit. Artemis is at Ephesus. She is the goddess of childbirth and midwifery. That's her, her position as a goddess. And I think that may help us understand a really puzzle. I still don't understand it, but I think it might help unlock a really puzzling uh, sentence that Paul uses in 1 Timothy 2.15. He's writing to Timothy. Timothy at that time was in Ephesus. You can tell because he says so in, in uh, chapter 1, verse 3. He writes to Timothy, and he's talking about why he doesn't let women uh, lead, why he doesn't let women teach. And he explains that because Adam was created first, and then Eve, and that whole thing. And then at the very end, he says the, the most puzzling thing. He says, yet she shall be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness and self-control. Where did the, the childbearing thing come from? I mean, it, we wrestle with that a lot. But if he's writing to people in Ephesus, their big concern might be, hey, we're, we're turning away from Artemis, and that may threaten our childbearing. It may threaten the children we're going to have. And what Paul says is, don't worry about that. You'll be saved through that because Jesus is greater than Artemis. So maybe that's what he's doing there. I, kind of an aside, but I just thought that was really an interesting uh, insight into what's going on because of who Artemis was. So what about her temple? Her temple in Ephesus was considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was huge, 450 feet long, four and a half football fields long, 225 feet wide, and 60 feet high. 60 feet is five and a half stories high. Built in the ancient world, before they had cranes and, and mechanical things like that, this was a wonder to behold. And it was huge business for Ephesus. That was the pride of Ephesus. Do you remember, it, uh, you heard Fernando read it a little bit later on, the town clerk is going to say, we are the temple keepers. That was an official duty, an official title. They had the grandest temple in all of the world at that time. It was huge. So that's what's being threatened here. This is what Demetrius is trying to stir people up with. Our business is in trouble. Our culture is in trouble. If they abandon this temple, then what has Ephesus got to hold on to? And then our, our great goddess, if they turn away from Artemis, she's going to get mad. So you guys, we've got to do something about this Paul. He's messing everybody up. So... That's what he brings to them. He, he gets them angry about that, and he says, there's no little danger to this trade of ours that it might come into disrepute. Um, and also the te great temple of the great goddess, and she might be deposed. And, and then he says at the end, she whom all Asia and the whole world worship. And really she was. She was at that time one of the primary gods in the ancient world. She was big business. So that's his, that's his problem. He introduces this problem. He gets people excited about it. 
And so now we get to the riot. When they heard these things, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! That's a recorded thing in history, not just in the book of Acts. There are other places that record this was a chant that they would yell. This was the pride of the city. Artemis of the Ephesians, she's our goddess. And so they would, that, that was a chant that they would yell because of the pride of their city. And so the response to Luke's gospel is great is the, the um, Artemis of the Ephesians. And so the whole city is filled with confusion and they rush together in the temple, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in his travel. Everybody gets so upset they drag people into the theater. We've seen Paul in the theater before. Well, Paul didn't make it. They wouldn't let him in. Same thing happens this time. The theater in Ephesus was beautiful, by the way. Huge, built into the side of a hill. Just a giant theater, a wonderful place. Um, it was also the kind of place where you would take people for trials. If you had a problem with them, you'd bring them in, and that was where the, uh, the trial would take place. Um, so they can't find Paul, apparently. So they grab Gaius and Aristarchus, his two friends that didn't go, and they drag them in. And these are the guys that they're going to put on trial. Now, it says Paul wished to go in among the crowd. The disciples would not let him. So they're wanting, he's wanting to go in. No, let me, let me go. I can address this crowd. And they're like, Paul, are you insane? Look, at it's a mad fervor in there. They've lost their minds. If you step in, you're going to get ripped apart. We can't let you do it. And it says even some of the Asiarchs, who were his friends, sent to him and urged him not to venture into the theater. What's an Asiarch? An Asiarch was an elected ruler of Asia. And what they would be is like civic rulers and leading men of Ephesus. They would be these kind of high muckety-mucks, big-time city officials. They were usually elected for a year, but they would hang out of that title that they were an Asiarch for the rest of their lives sometimes. So these are not the city administrator, but another elected official who was ruling that. And Paul had contact with them. Do you see how far the gospel has gone? It's not just amongst the poor people or something like that. It's also going up to those in power and authority. So the Asiarchs hear about it, and even they say, Paul, this is a bad idea. You can't go into that, that crowd. It's only going to make things worse. And so that's what they tell him, and so they won't let him go in. And um, some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hands, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Do you get the idea? There is utter chaos going on here. Nobody knows what's going on. They dragged in two guys who were traveling companions with Paul, and now to make a defense, they grab a Jew, and they put him up. And what I think is going on is I think they still, at this point, consider Christianity a sect of Judaism. So, look, it's a Jew that's doing this. So grab a Jew and put him up there. Now, if Alexander had been able to speak, he would have probably tried to distance himself from Christianity. The way. Because what did Jews do? Jews were present in Ephesus. Obviously, they had a temple or a, a synagogue there. They went there and they were, um, they, Paul preached among them until they got mad and threw him out. So when Alexander comes in, the reason that they would grab a Jew and say, now explain this to us, is because up until that point, the Jews were not a problem. Consider the Jewish way of doing things. They didn't like Gentiles. They were monotheists, so they did not believe in Artemis of the Ephesians. They wouldn't worship there. They wouldn't go there. But they weren't a problem because they didn't bother anybody. They just said, well, that's not what we're going to do. We're going we're, we're to worship our God, but not yours. 
They didn't associate with Gentiles. Do you remember when Peter got yelled at for going to a Gentile's house? You ate with a Gentile? And he was, hey, God blessed him. He sent his spirit on him. What am I going to say? So the Jews' attitude was, we don't have anything to do with the, with the Gentiles. We don't have anything to do with their religion. They didn't cause problems. They weren't out evangelizing. The problem wasn't the Jews. The problem was Paul. The problem was what Paul was preaching. That confronted, that directly confronted Artemis. And so they grab Alexander and they want him to go, but nope, they keep yelling with one voice for two hours. Can you imagine being in the, the, the um, theater and hearing this giant crowd for two hours keep yelling the same thing? And people are trying to calm him down. Alexander's moving his hands going, shush, let me talk, let me talk. Nope, they keep going. It, this is a scene of utter chaos. Remember the accusation before is these men who've turned the world upside down. Here's your prime example. <laughs> Ephesus is in, in utter chaos. So how do they resolve it? What do they do to bring this under control? When the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, men of Ephesus. So the town clerk, um, the town clerk was not just um, like the town recorder or something. This was like a very important office in the city of Ephesus. Uh, the town clerk was the keeper of all the records. Um, so they would, they would take care of all the records of everything. They were the registrar, so if anything was registered in the city. And the most important thing is it was the accountant of the temple funds. A lot of money went in and out of that temple. And so this person, this town clerk, was the one who kept records of all of that money. So it was, it was a big deal. This was the, the primary person in the city. So when he stepped into, the, town, into the, uh, the theater and started waving his hands, everybody shut up because they know who this is. And then he pleads with him and listen to his case. Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of, Ephesus, the, city of the Ephesians is the temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? This temple is well known throughout the world. Everybody knows about this. And everybody knows you come to Ephesus to view that temple. That's not disputable. All right, so what about the stone that fell from the sky? Um, there are examples of meteorites being set up as, as idols. A uh, stone falls from the sky. They go, they recover the meteorite. They put it on a temple and they worship it. Um, there's no record that we are aware of that that happened in Ephesus. Uh, but it must have because the town clerk says, everybody knows the rock that fell from the sky. The, the way that it's described is this, this stone that fell from Zeus. Zeus threw this down to us. And so since we've got it, now we put it up. You can't make a manufacture one of those. Nobody's going to go find another one. So what he's saying is, look, we are well known as a city for taking care of the temple the great, the beautiful, the huge temple of Artemis, and we even have a stone from Zeus. Now, who's going to argue with us? You can't argue with this kind of stuff. Look, and that's exactly where he goes. He says, seeing that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. You can't deny that we have the temple, that we have the stone from the heavens. That's, that's, that's just an established fact. So be quiet and don't do anything rash. Here's why. <laughs> Uh, remember the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. That was what was maintained at all costs. And if anybody disturbed the peace of Rome, they would get crucified or executed or thrown in jail or whatever it took. And so what the, the town clerk is saying is, don't do anything rash because you're about to disturb the Pax Romana. And if you do, we're in big trouble. 
we're an important city, but that's not going to stop the Roman army from coming in and knocking us out. So chill, take it easy. He says, you've brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. So what he's doing is he's looking at what Paul has said. And he's, what he's saying is what I was saying earlier. Paul really hasn't spoken against Artemis. That hasn't been his primary message. He hasn't blasphemed Artemis. He hasn't tried to destroy the temple. He hasn't done anything horrible. He's not a blasphemer. He's not sacrilegious. He's just a Jew. So, you know, what's the big deal? Okay, but I understand you have a beef. So if, therefore, Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anybody, the courts are open and there are proconsuls, let them bring charges against one another. In other words, this screaming and hollering in the temple, this utter chaos that's going on, is a bad idea. We have established ways to handle disputes. Use them. But if you seek anything further, it will be settled in the regular assembly, for we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today. And since there is no cause we can give to justify this commotion, Paul has not done anything to cause this commotion. You guys are just worked up. So do you remember what started here? Demetrius said, hey, you know what? Paul's a danger. Paul's message is a danger. It's going to ruin our city. And what happens in the end is the chief person, the chief administrator in the town says, you know who's really at danger of ruining the city? You guys, knock it off. If you keep this up, you're going to usher in the Romans and they're going to knock us all flat. So who's really the danger here? From a secular point of view, from, a, from just the, the administrative point of view, the riot was the bigger threat. So he says, just stop. And then in the end, and when they had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. So all of these rioting people and the town clerk goes, okay, now go home. And they all turn around and leave. It's pretty an amazing thing, isn't it? So I cheated. I skipped what Demetrius's main beef was because I think it really is the heart of the issue. Because all of this stuff about the riots and the screaming and the hollering and everything originated because what Demetrius said. So I think what's really important is for us to go back and analyze what did Demetrius say and what does it mean. So Paul is not here. He never speaks in this part. All he said was well, he was going to go through uh, Greece and back to uh, Jerusalem. He's not here. He's not the principal actor in this. Now, don't think that we're done with Paul, because last week we didn't get to hear from him, and this week he doesn't really say much either. Chapter 20 is a long discourse by Paul. We'll come back to him. But the way Luke wrote this is he's drawing attention not to Paul the person, but the message of Paul and the implications of the message of, the, of Paul. And so what he's saying is the gospel has implications. It means things, and it affects more than just your salvation. It affects a whole bunch of things. So did Paul preach against gods made with hands? Potentially, yes. He, he may have had a lot to say about it in history, in time, when he was at these places. He may have really rallied hard against it. That's not what we need to look at, though. What we're looking at, when we check out what Luke has written to us, we are taking Luke's presentation of the events, which doesn't include every event, does it? It's not every little thing that happened. It is Luke's presentation. This is what I'm telling you. This is the picture I'm painting for you. And so Luke's emphasis on Paul's message has been Jesus' resurrection, not don't worship idols. Now, the implication then is Luke is trying to teach us something about what the gospel means beyond our salvation. 
He's trying to take it a little bit further because he's setting it in this, this secular setting where these people are having big conniption fits because of their goddess. And how does that matter? How does that affect us? So Luke's presentation to us, which is, by the way, inspired by the Holy Spirit, it's accurate, it's true, it is authoritative. Let's look at it that way. Instead of trying to argue through the history of it, we'll take Luke's presentation. So he, he really, his major message was not so much, don't worship idols. His major message was, Jesus is risen from the dead. And so, when, like I said, when he was in Athens, he talks to the, the, uh, the philosophers on Mars Hill, and he tells them um, about Jesus, about the resurrection. As a matter of fact, in, in uh, verse 18 of chapter 17, uh, he begins to speak in the public square because he's provoked. And the uh, philosophers, the Epicurean and the Stoic philosophers say, what does this babbler have to say? And others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. And then Luke says, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So right there we're told Jesus and the resurrection was a topic. And then when he gets to Mars Hill and he speaks, he does at one point say, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formerly made by the art and the imagination of men. So he does deal with it, but not first and foremost. First and foremost is, is um, the resurrection. So Demetrius's charge in verse 27 of chapter 19 is, there's a danger to our trade, there's a danger to the temple, and there's a danger to the great goddess. So these are the three things that are, that are in danger. Their trade, there's a danger to the economy. There's an economic impact of the gospel. The temple was really the heart, the center of uh, Ephesus. It was the cultural center of the city. There's a danger to the culture. And finally, there's a danger to the goddess herself. There's a danger to religion. That's Demetrius's charge. That our trade, our economy could crash. Our temple could be counted as nothing. And if the temple's gone, why would people bother with Ephesus? And then finally, the goddess herself might be taken down. Religion is going to be affected. So there are, these are some implications of the gospel as um, Paul presented it. The fact that Jesus rose from the dead speaks to these things. It overflows to that. So did the gospel threaten Demetrius's trade? Depends on what you mean by that. Was there anything immoral and wrong about being a silversmith? If he made collectible spoons, everybody get collectible spoons when you go someplace and they got, the, if he made collect, collectible spoons that said, welcome from uh, Ephesus, would that have been a problem? Would he have been offended at Paul saying, there is one true and living God? There's nothing immoral or wrong about silversmithing. It can actually be a beautiful thing. It, it, it takes a lot of skill to create beautiful things with it. So silversmithing was not the problem. The problem was what they were doing with silversmithing, what they were making with it. So was it a threat to his trade, to his guild, his, his way of living? No. What it was a threat to was the market that they had established, these false idols, these, these temples and things. That was what he was focusing on. So it doesn't really affect silversmithing. It transforms it. It says you can still be a silversmith and do it in a beautiful way, a way that glorifies God, a way that makes you ultimately happy. You can still make money off being a silversmith. That's okay. 
That's not a danger. That's not being threatened by the gospel. What it's saying is God has given us these things. He's filled the world with silver. He's filled men with skills. And you can use them for good. Read the book of Exodus. There are skilled people who do wonderful things, making things out of gold and silver and all kinds of precious metals. So it's not a bad thing. It's okay. Work is not part of the curse. The work that the man was doing was an okay thing. It was a good thing. Work is not part of the curse. God put Adam and Eve in the garden to keep it. And then they fell. The curse is now work is really hard. Now you're going to do it by the sweat of your brow. It's going to be really difficult. But work itself is not the curse. So really, the gospel didn't threaten Demetrius's trade as much as it threatened to transform it. To say there's no market for these little temples anymore. There's a market for other things. Do that. So did the gospel threaten Ephesus's culture? Well, the temple was the pride of the city. And the problem with this is when you build your, your hope on something, when you put at the center of your being something, it's got to be able to last. If it can't last, it's not worthy of that kind of devotion. So listen to the history of the temple. So the temple of Artemis was built, and then in 356, an arsonist sought fame for himself, and so he lit the rafters on fire and tried to burn down the temple, destroyed the temple because of his own vainglory. That's how it was described. So he, he lit it on fire, and then it was rebuilt. And so as they rebuilt it, everything was great until 7 BC. And then in 7 BC, a flood came through and destroyed the temple by depositing a few feet of silt and debris throughout it, ruined the temple. And so it went into disuse, and then it was built again, and everything was great until 256 AD when the Goths showed up and ruined the place. So Ephesus, is Ephesus' culture in danger? Well, if your culture is rooted in something as temporary as a building that an earthquake or a flood can wipe out, then yeah, maybe it is. But you know what? Maybe it wasn't the gospel that was threatening it. Maybe it was just a course of nature that was threatening it. What was going to happen, what was being offered here, was not a reduction or a destruction of Ephesian culture. It was a renewal of it. You can have something greater than a temple which can be destroyed. You can have something more permanent than a temple that can be taken away. Jesus' body is his temple. He said, tear this temple down and in three days I'll raise it up again. That can't be taken away. He will never see decay again. He will never undergo corruption again. So if we move from idolizing a temple to the gospel at the center of the culture. The culture isn't destroyed, it's renewed. And, and it, from the time of the first century onward, that has been the recurring pattern of the gospel going into different cultures, is it didn't have to destroy the culture and replace it. When Islam goes into a place, you have to submit to Islam, you have to dress like a seventh century man, and you have to adopt Arabic as a language, and, and it can't transform. It has to destroy that culture and replace it with another one. When Christianity comes in, Christianity says, this is simply the message. You can still be Asian. You can still be African. You can still be European and be a Christian. It doesn't have to destroy it. Now, to be fair, we've got a bad history of colonizing effects of evangelism. When British evangelists went into Africa, they did it in a way that was not really helpful because they said, well, you have to wear a suit and tie and you have to sit in a building with a pointed roof. 
And what we're finding is that that really wasn't the center of what Christianity was. That was the center of British culture. So there's a way to do it, and there's a way to do it. But Christianity itself, the gospel at itself, doesn't destroy culture. It renovates it. It brings it to life. And here's where I'm going with this. There's a historian named Tom Holland. Um, he had written a lot about the, um, uh, the ancient Near East and, and uh, Greco-Roman empires and stuff. And as he's writing, he kept looking. He said, you know, these men that I've always really admired, uh, Caesar and, and Tiberius, and all these, these men who have been held up as, as great men, I, just, I don't recognize their ethics. They treated people like they were nothing. They would ride over somebody if they were in the way and not think, not beat an eye. Why is it that when I look at that, I go, that's horrific. You can't treat people like that. Why is it that my ethics are so different from them when Western culture is built on uh, Greek and Roman culture? Why is it, what changed it? What happened? And so he wrote an article, uh, I think it was for The Economist, called I Was Wrong About Christianity. Um, Holland is, is not a Christian. He would say he's not really a Christian, but he, he says, I am a Christian in that I, I think that's where my ethics come from. So listen to what he says. He says, the longer I uh, spent immersed in the study of classical antiquity, the more alien and unsettling I came to find it. The values of Leonidas, whose people had practiced practically murderous form of eugenics, were trained from their youth to kill uppity, um, he uses a term that's a Nazi term for racially or socially inferior people. So he's really kind of saying it wasn't isolated to just Sparta. This is something that the West has done too. Um, he, he, they were trained to kill them by night, where nothing that I recognized, all of these ethics were nothing I recognized as my own. Nor were those of Caesar, who was reported to have killed a million Gauls and enslaved million mores, million more. It was not just the extremes of callousness that I came to find shocking, but the lack of a sense that the poor or weak might have any intrinsic value. So when Christianity came into this culture, this Greco-Roman culture, what it brought with it transformed the culture because it said individual people are made in God's image and each individual person is worth respect. So today we talk about human rights. Where do human rights come from? Do they come from the fact that humans get together and agree on them? Oh, there's a bad track record of that. They come from, at their best, the idea that each individual human being is an image bearer of God and therefore is special, therefore has intrinsic values that God has placed on them. They have rights that God has bestowed on them. That is a uniquely Christian approach. It didn't exist until Christianity came into uh, the Roman Empire, and then it transformed it, it changed it. So one of the other things that Holland brings up is he said, well, you know, it didn't come from the Enlightenment either. So the Enlightenment was in the uh, 17, 1600s, 1700s, 1500s? Was, I forget where it was, the Enlightenment. So act like I just nailed it down for you. Everybody nod your head and go, yeah, it was very clever, Tim. The Enlightenment came along and said, um, well, we need to cast off Christianity. It has throttled the progress of the West. And so we're going to be smarter than, it, than that. We're going to cast off these myths and these legends, and that will propel us into a grand and glorious future. Did it? Well, it's, it brought about the Industrial Revolution and some other things, but what Holland says is what those people did is they snuck in their Christianity while at the same time denying it. It came from a Christian West, 
And then the Enlightenment comes along, and why do we expect the universe to be rational? Why should we treat people with equal rights? Why should we have freedom? Because humans are made in God's image. So they, even that snuck it in. Christianity has so infected the West that even today people are arguing for human rights, and they deny Christianity and say it's horrible, and it's narrow-minded, and it's bigoted. And they don't realize where the ethic they got to argue about that came from. So is Christianity, does it destroy culture? It renews, it, when it's done properly, it brings in meaning and purpose to culture. It doesn't destroy it. So did the gospel then threaten Artemis? It had to. It, it really had to, but not so much by denying her worship, by saying the gospel doesn't come in and go, Artemis is just a horrible God and why would you worship that? Stop doing that. Um, I, Paul knew better. He knew that the human heart was built to worship, and if it doesn't worship Artemis, it better worship something else, because it's going to find something. So he didn't come in and say, stop worshiping Artemis. What he came in is, he said very little about Artemis. What he said is, I'm here to preach to you a God who took on flesh, who came and dwelt among you, who come and sought you out, who loves you, who now sits at the right hand and is freely announcing his gospel to the world. I'm not telling you, stop worshiping Artemis. What I'm saying is there's something much better than Artemis because humans are built to worship. So there was a man named David, Waller, or David Foster Wallace. He, uh, tragically, he committed suicide in 2008. Um, he was not a believer, he was not a Christian, but in 2005, he gave a commencement speech, and I think he hit on the truth. He could do that as a non-believer because, like I've said a couple of times, reality has a way of hitting you in the face. Um, you can define however you want it, but eventually you come up against reality and you have to admit it. Wallace was smart enough to go, okay, there's a reality here that I'm seeing, um, and, and here's what he says about this. This is most of the way through his, his commencement speech. He said, here's something else that's weird but true. See? Bumped into reality. Here's something else that's weird but true. In the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it Jesus Christ or Allah or Yahweh or Wiccan Mother Goddess or the Four Noble Truths or some intelligible, uh, inf uh, infringible set of ethical principles is that pretty much anything else will, you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if there where you tap real meaning in life, then you'll never have enough. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before you fi they finally plant you. Worship power, where you, uh, you will feel weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to keep that fear at bay. Worship your intellect. Being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Look, the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful. It's that they are unconscious. They are the default setting. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without being fully aware that that's what they're doing. So even this non-believer recognized what you worship. He says right at the beginning, you have to worship something. People are built to do that. 
What he says is, pick what you worship. And he says, his recommendation is pick something spiritual. And then he gives us a list. And there's a problem with the list is he didn't think far enough through this. The warning is, if you worship one of these things, they'll eat you alive. Will Allah eat you alive? Allah only wants you to obey. Do these things. Here's the five pillars. Do this. You have to live up to this standard. You have to come this way. You have to do these things. Eventually, that will crush you because you can't. You won't. You don't want to. He says, worship that or Yahweh. That's a good thing, right? Well, it depends on what you mean by Yahweh. If we are worshiping Yahweh apart from Jesus Christ, what is that equal? That's the Old Testament. That's the law. What did Paul say about the law? It destroyed me. I pursued it constantly, and I could never find rest in the law. So if we worship Yahweh apart from Jesus Christ, we get law, and it will crush you. It was never intended to fill you up. It was only ever intended to point you to Jesus. So if you do that, the law will eat you alive. Uh, the wicked mother goddess, is she ever happy? She will never be satisfied. You have to come up with another spell and another incantation and another thing just to get her to do what you want her to do. It will wear you out as you're trying to figure out the next magical incantation I need. This, the four noble truths. Here we go, more law. That'll do it, right? Instead of, you know, the 300 and something in the Old Testament, we'll narrow it down to four and that'll be better. Yeah, except you couldn't live up to them. How are you doing with the Ten Commandments? How about the four noble laws? At some point, it all breaks down. It's going to consume you or some infrangible set of ethical principles. Be your own law. Yeah, you ever hear the phrase, the only thing I'm intolerant of is intolerance? Guess what? <laughs> You're intolerant of yourself. You've just violated your own law. You need a savior. So this is what I'm saying is that they, he didn't go far enough. Had he thought the next step, he would find in that list only Jesus Christ is the one who came and said, I took care of it. I bore the burden. I'm not here to eat you alive. You can't feed me. You can't satisfy me. You can't fill me up. Here's my flesh and my blood. Eat. I came to feed you, not for you to feed me. So he just didn't go far enough. How about Artemis of the Ephesians? Could she fill you up? Did she come and take flesh so that she could die for your sins? Artemis is saying, if you don't keep me happy, I'm going to zap your kids. If you don't keep me happy, I'm going to kill you in childbirth. She's going to eat you alive, literally eat you alive. So did Christianity threaten Artemis? Yes, it did, but it threatened Artemis not by saying, stop worshiping Artemis, but, but by offering something so much better that what actually happened to the temple in Ephesus is it became obsolete. The Christians closed it because as the gospel spread and more of Ephesus turned to Christ, the temple fell into disuse. Nobody went there anymore. Isn't that great? We didn't have to enact a law with the Asiarch saying, uh, put a fence around the temple and keep people out. That wouldn't have changed their hearts. Their hearts would have found something else to worship. Instead, the gospel came in and said, I offer you something so much better that the temple just fell into disuse. Nobody went there anymore. And then it finally got taken out when the Goths showed up. So the gospel, when we think about the gospel, 
First and foremost, it has to do with the salvation of your soul. You are made right with God the Father, not because he ignores your sins, but because he dealt decisively and fully with your sins. Jesus Christ came and he took them for yourself. He died to them, and then in victory, he stood up and rose above them. That's the truth. That's the gospel. So it is for the saving of your soul, but it also has further implications for how we live. If that's true, if it's true that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, then it must affect how you do your job. It must affect the nature of your culture. If your culture is fixated on something horrible, Jesus is here to rescue from that, and it must affect your worship. It's going to change your religion. So I just want to end on this, this quote from one of the commentators, Daryl Bach. I thought he summed up this whole section about the implications of the gospel really well. It's a little longish, uh, but uh, stick with me. I think, he, I think he makes a good case. He said, what created the environment for such effective ministry? That Paul could change all of Asia. One man could change all of Asia. What created the environment for such an effective ministry? It was Paul's example. He sought a ministry that engaged the community at large. He engaged in homes, in public places, and in context where the city as a whole might hear about it, always in the form of persuasive discussion, not imposition. How did Paul do ministry? He went into homes, he went into synagogues, he went into town squares. And what he did was persuade, not threaten, not intimidate, not enact laws. He went in and he persuaded. He argued his case, even going into context that allowed for debate and expression of contrary opinion, as when he went to the synagogue on Mars Hill. Paul was not afraid to go talk to people who didn't believe him. He wasn't afraid to go and talk to people who would say contrary things. They would speak evil of the way. He went right into those places, and he engaged them. Was it because he was so smart? Well, yeah, he was, but that wasn't what he was counting on. That wasn't what his hope was in. His hope was in the message. And then the next thing, he stayed often, or he often stayed long enough to have an impact. When he came to Ephesus the first time, he said, I can't stay, I got to go, I'm coming back. And then he stayed two years. So Paul, when he went into a place to begin to tell this truth, he knew this more important fact, ministry takes time. People are slow. It is an investment of time. That was one of the things I said when I came from the church plant in Illinois. Somebody said, well, what'd you find that's different? I was like, ministry is much slower than I thought it was. I was hoping for this, you know, big revival, tent meeting, kind of blah, and everything changes. And boy, you just work through every day, preaching the word, leading people to Jesus. That's how you do it. It's slow. And Paul knew that. And so Paul goes to Ephesus and he sticks around for two years. And the result of that is all Asia hears. Ministry is just slow. He then goes on to quote John Stott, or summarize John Stott. John Stott's a, a, um, an evangelical uh, theologian who's written quite a bit. He's, he's a very interesting person to read. He's a very good writer. He says, John Stott contrasts this, Paul's, effective, or Paul's method to ministry, Stott contrasts it with, first, the often isolationist form of evangelism where we bring people to church rather than take the initiative to engage them in their context. So the way we do ministry often is come to church and let the professional tell you about it. That's not a bad thing. If you invite a friend to church, I think that's wonderful. 
But the point he's making here is it takes more than just an invite to church. You have to enter into this person's world. You have to connect with them in their context. In the first century, you didn't take somebody to church. If you were a Christian in the first century, you could be arrested. They could plunder your house. They could take all your possessions. You might wind up being fed to a lion. So why would you go grab an unbeliever and take him to the place where all the Christians in the area would come together? That would be dangerous. And yet, in that context, the church exploded. It went everywhere while it was being persecuted. You didn't bring people to church. You brought the church to the people. You went and, you, you went and talked to them about Jesus. That was a very different approach back then. Now, it's okay if you bring somebody to church. Let me re-say it again. It's okay if you bring them here. I, I, I approve. I give you my permission. Um, but the other part of it is it's slow, and you need to enter their context. You need to enter their life. Second thing Stott brings up, the emotional emphasis of our appeals in contrast to the attempt to gain real appreciation for the gospel. Sometimes when we present the gospel, we can go for an emotional appeal. We can make it just, it, it's, um, it, it, don't you want? Don't, you know, but this is a good thing. Instead, how did Paul do it? What's the word that kept coming up over and over again? Reasoned. He reasoned from the scriptures. So he, instead of heading right to the emotion, he went through the head to get the imagination to get the emotion. We want to shortcut that if we go just for the emotional appeal, if we make it a big bells and whistles kind of thing. Third thing he brings up, the pursuit of quick encounters and decisions instead of taking the time to relate to someone so that personal follow-up is possible. Let me, let me, let me come in and, and uh, carpet bomb you, and then we're gone and I may never see you again. Instead, what he says is Paul would encounter people and come back and come back and come back. He, he kept coming back to synagogues until he got thrown out. And then he went to the Hall of Tyrannus and he invited people in and he kept ministering and he kept ministering to people. The pursuit of quick encounters and decisions instead of taking the time to relate to someone so that personal follow-up is possible. And follow-up is the thing, isn't it? What are we told to do? Are we told to make converts? We're told make disciples. Disciples is an ongoing process. It's slow, it's steady, it's teaching, it's over and over again. Teach them to obey all that I've commanded you. That's the, the approach. In uh, Bach says, in the end, um, in the end, effective is rarely, uh, must have typed this wrong. Um, in the end, effective is rarely done in the context of a guerrilla-like encounter, but usually requires a sustained effort over time. Uh, oh, effectiveness. In the end, effectiveness is rarely done in the context of a gorilla-like encounter. And he doesn't mean the gorillas that eat bananas and, and swing in trees. He's talking about gorilla warfare, where you sneak in and you snipe them and then you sneak out. But usually requires sustained effort over time. So how are we doing? Beginning of the year, uh, Dan said this the last congregational business meeting. Beginning of last year, we were running around 50 people. This year, we're running around 60 people. In certain measured circles, that would be a failure. You're not growing the church fast enough. In my opinion, we are doing just fine because ministry's slow, because we're here for the long haul. How long has this church been here? 35 years. We going away anytime soon? 
We're going to keep plugging and keep plugging and keep plugging because that's what we're commissioned to do. Not have a big explosive event, have 5,000 people show up in a day and then call it a deal. If God wants to do that, that's fine, by the way. Lord, if, if that's your plan, I'm good with it. But really, the picture that we're getting from Paul, the picture we're getting from Acts is slow and steady. Keep plugging. Keep working. And God daily was adding to their numbers those who were appointed to eternal life. And that's the good news. So this is the picture that Paul has in Ephesus and in Asia. That's the riot. Isn't it interesting how Luke did that? He held up a riot to teach us this very important principle about how ministry is done. He held up this huge opposition, this riotous opposition to the gospel to say, yeah, you know what? It has implications in life. It means things beyond the salvation of your soul. I, I, I think it's brilliant writing on Luke's part. I love, I'm really loving going through Acts with him. He's such a gifted and understanding writer that he's bringing these pictures out to us in very specific ways so we can get it, so we can feel it, so we can be part of the story. And I just, I'm thankful for that. So I'm looking forward to chapter 20. Should we do that next week? What do you think? Yeah, let's do it. All right. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we're so grateful that the gospel has come here, that we've heard about who Jesus is, Lord, that we've seen the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and Lord, that you have given us by the power of your spirit the ability to understand it affects more than Sunday morning. The truth of Jesus' resurrection means more than Sunday morning. It means no less than that. And so thank you for Sunday mornings. May we encourage each other. May we hold each other up. May we lead each other to follow Christ more. And Lord, I pray that we would live out these gospel implications in our lives. Lord, there's so many more than what we spoke this morning. And I pray that as we're reading through our scriptures this year, as all of us are reading our Bibles, Lord, would you point them out to us? Holy Spirit, would you, would you tweak our little minds and remind us this is a gospel implication. This has meaning in life. This, this goes beyond just the salvation of your soul. Though nothing less than that, it means you, it affects your entire life. Lord, lead us, we pray. We're your disciples. You're the master. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.